0: Tonight on Arena Garth Davis director Ian Reid Writer on how the film Faux brought Saoirse Ronan and Paul Mescal together on screen and Richard Hawley on his new album Now Then. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. Academy Award nominees Saoirse Ronan and Paul Meskell star in the film *Foe*, a haunting exploration of marriage and identity set in a very uncertain world. The story revolves around this married couple, played by Ronan and Mescal, who lead an isolated life on a remote farm. But their quiet life is thrown into turmoil when an uninvited stranger shows up at the front door with a startling proposal. Regarding a move to outer space. The movie is based on Ian Reid's best selling novel and directed by Garth Davis, known for his work on films like Lion and Mary Magdalene. Delighted to be joined by both Ian Reid and Garth Davis. Now, Garth, maybe I, I can start with you. Would you tell me what it was that first drew you to Ian's novel, Foe?
1: I guess at first I was really taken by the, the mystery and the Hitchcockian setup of the story. I found it really exciting. But it actually took me in a, a direction I didn't expect. And it became this incredible uh, exploration of a marriage that's, uh, you know, that's struggling and and kind of unlocked all these really great philosophical metaphors. So it was um, just this story that just kept giving. So I was really, really moved by it, actually, ultimately. And in, in those
0: terms, Ian, when you were writing the novel, obviously we have this... I, one could say, decaying marriage at, at play, the character of Henrietta, or Hen, played by Saoirse Ronan, and Junior, played by Paul Meskel. But we also have a decaying planet. Was there a parallel there for you?
2: Yeah, there, there was. I think when I was initially writing the novel, I was most interested in the relationship. That's what I started writing about, was this uh, particular kind of relationship that wasn't necessarily affected by one dramatic act like an affair or something which is what we often see depicted in film and, and novels um, but but a relationship that was um, affected by something over time that was maybe um, huh. you know rotting slowly and that seemed to me to be uh, connected to the environment and 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 so that, felt like an apt metaphor to use for this story to to set that as the backdrop of this uh, marriage.
0: And and very much as Ian describes it there, Garth, you know, that, that big philosophy behind it is in many ways the job of a page, whereas close, personal and uh, it, that, that kind of emotional relationship between the married couple here is more often than not the, the, the job of films. Was it a difficult job to marry the two, because the both of you adapted the, the novel for the screenplay, was it a difficult job to marry those two uh, masters, if you like, relationship
1: and big philosophy? I guess that's what was really exciting about it. Um, the challenge—it was definitely a challenge, there's no doubt. Um, but that's why everyone came to this project, including the actors, the cinematographer, because there was—it was almost like an escher. There were so many secret rivers and layers and metaphors that we could kind of draw out and exude through the filmmaking. So uh, I really loved it. And I guess for me, I, I love, um i love what you get from the watching the movie—is this. you you were reminded of our interconnectedness and, um, and where our responsibility lies in not taking things for granted and um, that's what I really love about the film.
0: Let's have a listen to a clip which features uh, Aaron Pierre we should explain here is the character of Terence. We know that Henrietta Hen played by Saoirse Ronan and Junior played by Paul Meskell are uh, in a marriage that perhaps is in a little bit of difficulty but in arrives this stranger totally unexpected to tell them no less that there's a possibility that they will be sent to live in space. A little bit of language to be heard in the midst of this clip.
3: So I've been assigned to your file.
0: We have a file?
3: <laughs> you didn't sign us up for anything, did you? No. Okay, so this guy's just show up come out of nowhere, right?
4: Yeah, it's not my fault
3: Well, it wouldn't now. be the first fucking time that... No, you, okay. no, it's true. No, you didn't. You didn't. Um, but we've had our first lottery. I'm excited to say that you've made the shortlist. <laughs> You're one step closer <laughs> to living up there. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> yeah, you're wasting your time because we, we, we haven't even been on an airplane and she, she'd hate it.
5: Oh, so you wouldn't? You wouldn't hate I'm, it? I'm just you wouldn't hate
3: you, it. You wouldn't like flying? You've also never all. been on an airplane. Okay, we both don't fucking okay, like flying. What's the right. big deal? Sorry, I, should, I should clarify. Sorry. Um, I'm talking about you here, Junior. Only you. These tests require real physical strength. Specific skills, all of which you have, Julie. You, you, you're not fucking around, right? No, this is just a warning. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry. Warning's the wrong word. This is this is good news. It's good news. And uh, the government knows about this, right? We are the government. Our space station is orbiting Earth as we speak.
0: Aaron Pierre as Terence, Jr., played by Paul Meskel. Hen, played by Saoirse Ronan in a scene there from the film Foe. And writer Ian Reid and director Gareth Davis joining me on the programme this evening. Um, the, the, one of the things that really struck me there, uh, Ian, I'll come to you And this, is the kind of sinister undertow that Terence and that character brings. You know, the all-powerful government with a spaceship orbiting the Earth. Big brother on your mind here as well? <laughs>
2: I, you know, I think what I was really thinking about with, with Terrence uh, was introducing a character that um, would leave people wondering about his aim and, and what, he was, uh, what he was trying to do. Um, I, you know, thought of him as being someone who was very charming when oh. you first meet him uh, and likable and, and puts you at ease. Um, but, but what he, the lines that he's delivering, the information that he's, he's trying to convey to this couple... Um, there's a little more to it um, than sort of his his demeanor might suggest and I think definitely didn't want to fall into the category of sort of a cliched villain yeah uh, because I I don't think he is that I think he's something else and something that was interesting while I was touring with the book uh, people always would want to know about the title foe and and some people thought is that Terrence and I love the idea of interpretation, mm. and people can interpret. And I think that's true also with Terence. That lots of people will interpret his motivations in in a, mm. in a lot of different ways, and, and I, I kind of like that. And that's down to a
0: wonderfully nuanced performance. It has to be said from Aaron Pierre. But you'll you'll forgive me if I go to both Saoirse Ronan and Paul Mescal. Extraordinary casting make, makes me very proud as an Irish person to see the two of them on on screen together in this fashion. It, you get two phenomenal, or you got two phenomenal performances from them, Garth. How important
1: were they to the cast, uh, their casting to this project? Extremely important. And and Hen was the first character that I wanted to cast. You know, I needed to find an actor that exuded this inner light and, and kind of have this beautiful free spirit. And, I mean, Saoirse Ronan is so unique in that way. Like, no matter what character she plays in any movie... Her spirit just shines through everything, and um, and I guess that's what's precious in this story, and and sits at the centre of Hen. So once we cast Saoirse, I had to go and find her a husband, and um, the path led me to Paul Mescal, who I met in Sydney, and um, he was so passionate about making this film and and playing the multiple characters he has to play in this movie mm. as well. And um, I I guess the Irish heritage was was, was the icing on the cake. It kind of, in a way, brought great realism to the characters on screen um, because these characters were married straight out of high school and from the one kind of area. Um, So, yeah, there was just something... The fact that they're both from Ireland, they just had oh. this immediate respect and love for each other and, and then they built upon that. And, I mean, it was I couldn't believe they'd never worked together before.
0: Yeah, you no, know, it is extraordinary to see the two of them on screen together. You mentioned the multiple characters that Paul Meskell has to play. Let's listen to another clip. Erin Pierre again here as Terence explaining to Hen, Saoirse Rowland, that she will get a replacement for Junior played by Paul Meskell when he goes off to space. A little
3: bit of language to be heard. we taking Junior away. You've never been all alone out here before. Yeah, so? <laughs> Could be a real strain on her, on your marriage. You're the one that's forcing me to leave her. Well, so we have to do what's moral.
5: And what do you consider to be moral?
3: We're going to replace you. What, me? We're going to ensure Hen has company while you're away. <laughs> oh, <No>, fuck <laughs> off No the fucking way that's happening. <laughs> but do you really want to leave her here all alone? Day after day, night after night. She can handle herself. Sorry,
5: why doesn't anybody ask me how I feel about it? Because I'm right fucking here.
3: Calm down.
2: No, 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 you fucking calm down.
3: Hear me out, okay? It's another man, we're developing a biological replacement. (laughs) What the fuck (laughs) is he talking about? In the old (laughs) days, you would have left Hen with a two-dimensional photo of yourself. This is the next step, okay? A dynamic copy of you with living tissue.
5: I I don't want a fucking robot living with my wife.
3: Ah, it's not a robot, okay? It's a new kind of self-determining life form. The first to live in a domestic setting as freely as you do.
0: Aaron Pierce, uh, Saoirse Ronan, and Paul Meskel in the midst of that clip. Uh, I, again, Ian, it struck me: are there anxieties around artificial intelligence? Was that part of the, the, the bigger philosophy, the bigger discussion that you wanted to have in both the book and the film?
2: I think so, a little bit. I, 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 as I say, I started really thinking about this relationship, and then I wanted to sort of expand out from there. Uh, and to get at that, to get at the relationship in a way that to me felt new, huh. um, to, to, try and write a story that felt like one I hadn't really encountered before. And so that led me to start thinking about, um, you know, this, this particular relationship was one that to me felt fairly confining. Huh. It's in this old farmhouse in the middle of nowhere and it's just the two people. And I think it was very confining for one of them. And so, you know, the opposite of that is, is space. Yeah. Which is literally endless, and so to me that felt like um it it fit nicely and and then along with that came these ideas of of AI and yeah. that's something that you know i I'd been thinking about reading about um and I decided that that would just be a nice sort of narrative technique, yeah, absolutely um, to yeah. still. Yeah, to sort of still get at what this relationship is and, and not focus so much on the AI, but use that as as a way mm-hmm. to get into the relationship. Yeah, and I love the
0: music of Elgar playing in the background there and the fact that um, Saoirse Ronan's character says, you know, I am here. You can ask me what I think about all of this <laughs> as well. But um, the, the the film is set, we are told at the beginning, uh, Garth Davis in the Midwest 2065, but Kevin, your accent, I'm not surprised how you came across the location for the big external uh, uh, shoots, big outdoor shoots uh, for the film. Tell us where it was shot and why you chose that particular place.
1: Yeah, uh, it was never the plan to shoot in Australia, but that's where we ended up shooting. Um, I guess Ian and I stumbled across this gorgeous farmhouse in Canada um, and that, like a very Andrew Wyeth kind of house, it, it definitely became the totem of the movie. But we had to wait quite a while for Sertia to come on board and and when she became available in the Northern Hemisphere, it'd be snowing, so that didn't really work for us. So I guess um, I was just thinking about Australia and and it does have uh, an incredible landscape, a lot of spirit in it, and there's definitely lots of devastated landscape in Australia too. So we kind of took the farmhouse and built it in the Australian landscape to kind of create this near future world. Um, so yeah, it was it was kind of a, a crazy idea, but it really really feels immersive. Finally,
0: Anne Reid, seeing that process or that journey from page to screen, does it make you feel that you'd like to do something like this again?
2: Oh, absolutely. I, I think I, I didn't have it in my mind when I was initially writing the novel that it, it would ever um, turn into a, a film, and so I was I just sort of followed that path as it came up, and it was so enjoyable. I felt so lucky and grateful to have these various artists coming on board to bring their expertise to it. The actors, the musicians, cinematographer, uh, production designer. There's so many people involved in a film compared to a novel, which is really just one person in a room for a couple of years writing that it feels so exciting. Well, listen,
0: lovely to speak with you both. That's uh, Garth Davis, director and co-writer of the screenplay in Reed, co-writer of the screenplay and novelist, uh, writer of the novel on which the film is based. Foe, starring Saoirse Ronan and Paul Meskell, is released on October the 20th. Richard Hawley is one of the most respected songwriters and musicians in Britain. He has collaborated with Pulp, Arctic Monkeys, Lisa uh, Lisa Marie Presley, Paul Weller and Elbow. He's written for television and film, including recently co-writing songs for Wes Anderson's Asteroid City. At this year's Olivia Awards, he won Best Original Score for his musical Standing at the Sky's Edge. This Friday, his career-spanning new album called Now Then, The Very Best of Richard Hawley will be released. Here's the opening track, Open Up Your Door.
6: Open up your door I can't see your face no more Love is so hard to find And even harder to define Oh, open up your door Cos we've time to give And I'm feeling it so much more Open up the door Open up
0: your door there Opening track on Now Then The Very Best of Richard Hawley Double album that we are talking about this evening And I'm delighted that Richard Hawley himself One of the most respected songwriters and musicians In recent British musical history Is on the line to speak to us About his two decade plus career Including multiple nominations Of the Mercury Prize and Brit Awards Collaborations with the likes of Paul Partick, Monkeys, Lisa Marie Presley Paul Weller, Elbow The list goes on and on Richard, great to have you with us uh, this evening on Arena. I love that that opening track, it, you kind of, you know, this idea of open up your door. That's what I felt you did for me <laughs> across all of the 22 tracks here. You opened up your door and you invited me in and said, hey, this is me. Do you, want, do you want to spend a bit of time with me? Was that kind of half the intention?
6: Yeah, probably. But I guess, you know, I'm a steelworker, son from Sheffield. So my mother made sure that I was both to be very polite and I always opened up doors. Maybe it's a Northern British thing. I don't know. Yeah, well, or Northern you, English,
0: you know. yeah, absolutely. And it, it struck me that even that that title now <laughs> then has a kind of a, a Northern English flavour off it. If you put if if you do it in your accent, it kind of has the directness and the honesty of a Northern English sound to it.
6: Yeah, it's a greeting that everybody in, particularly Sheffield, but in the in the South Yorkshire. Uh, just said it's now then, but it, I like the surrealness of it because it doesn't actually make any sense. You know, <laughs> like in Birmingham, they say, ta in a bit. Uh, and and I know in, in Ireland, there's similar kind of mm. greetings or, or, you know, when you say farewell, but it's the surrealness of it. I like, you know, and uh, the thing is as well is normally, you know, artists released greatest hits, but I couldn't really do that because I haven't had any. <laughs> so it's a, uh, it's, it sort of had to have a title, I guess.
0: So, you, you would you not, are you thinking of you, Richard Hawley, the solo artist, has had no great hits? Although I think people might argue with you uh, on on that front about some of your songs, which would be very important to them.
6: Do you yeah, feel that you haven't I've had tr- greatest hits? No, I mean I've I've troubled the charts, as they say, with albums, but I've never had any hit singles. Not mm. really, not to my knowledge, you know. But it doesn't it it doesn't bother me, you know. Is is those kind of things? It's it's. Every time you make a record, it earns you the right to make another. To me, and because I've been doing it for so long, I mean, I made my first record forty years ago, mm. and and also, it's like a pause, I guess, in things because uh, I realized, well, my manager made me realize I kind of don't really think about these things, but he said, you know, it's twenty-five, it will be twenty-five years this year since you made your first solo record, and I, that made me slightly freaked out moderately I wouldn't say depressed but melancholy <laughs> <laughs> Christ has it been 25 years you know and um, and it's also it's my 25th wedding anniversary and it's also 25 years since I gave up the drug you know so uh, and I've got to tell you I don't have miss the drugs I'm joking yeah. um, I'm not one for looking back if you look over your shoulder too much it keeps you your attention away from what's coming up the road you know
0: that for sure is uh, those are the words of a of a steel worker's son. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. Although your father was so I, I the cliche is to think of the northern man um, the Irish man, uh, uh, often as well, the Irish father—you know, strong, yes, but quiet, distant, emotionally kind of away from his children and in his own world. This f- was not the case with your father, and I just love the story behind the, the song "My Little Treasures" because it, it concerns your father. Maybe you'd, you'd give us a little bit of that story as we head in to listen to "My Little Treasures," Richard.
6: Basically, when Dad had passed, is that two of my uncles? I've got Dad had a, a wide Amount of friends, a lot of really close mates, and a lot of them were musicians and steelworkers, just like him. They weren't my real uncles; they were just really close. And uh, Dad grew up on an estate in Sheffield called Parsons Cross, where he met two brothers, Roger and Pete Jackson, and they all formed the first real like hillbilly rockabilly band in Sheffield in the fifties, called the Hillbilly Cats. It was some time after Dad had gone. And Pete and Rog got in touch and said, look, you know, we'd really love to see you and take you out for a drink and, and talk about your dad and all like that. And uh, I agreed to meet him. And I was stood at the bar with with Uncle Pete and he was the bass player and Roger was the drummer. He, he, you know, we did the usual thing, which is, I'll get these, I'll get these. And Pete said, no, 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 I'm going to get these drinks. And he got his wallet out to pay. And in, inside the wallet was a picture an old black-and-white picture of him and Dad when they were kids sitting on his Uncle Phil's uh, motorbike and sidecar. But because this wallet was really, really old, and when he opened it up, this photo was kind of split in half, Do you know what I mean, where yeah. he folded the wallet, mm. and it was all kind of worn. And I said, what's that? And he said, oh, that's me and your father when we were kids playing on Uncle Phil's Motorbike and sidecar outside the house. I said, "How long has that been there?" And he just goes, "Since I got this wallet." I said, "I bought this. my His father bought this wallet for him the day he started in steelwork.
4: Hmm.
6: As a gift, and uh, he'd kept this picture of him and Dad for all those years. And it just seemed it, it struck me that that was one of his little treasures. And in fact, Pete said it's one of my little treasures. You know, and I, I mean, I can speak about this." fairly cold now like a robot because yeah. I've repeated this story so many times and it's about dad who I loved dearly and mm. and gave me so much you know
0: let's listen to a little bit of My Little Treasures
6: My Little Treasures I keep close to me. They give me so much pleasure. The I could
0: not That's my little treasures from now then. The very best of Richard Hawley, and delighted to have Richard Hawley speaking with us on the programme this evening about the 22 tracks that make up this, this double album. The, 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 the smoothness of, of your voice is just extraordinary when did when did you realize uh, that the instrument you had there
6: I probably still haven't <laughs> <laughs> I, I used to sing when I was little with mum because she used to do the ironing and she would always put the Everly brothers on or Roy Orbison or she listened to a lot like Kate and Anna, Anna McGarrigal and stuff like that and and I'd sit and she taught me to harmonize and and but I I didn't sing at all uh, especially not publicly until much much later I, I i've been going in a an irish pub in sheffield called fagan's uh for 37 years mm. and i would sing in there with the assistance of uh, a few pints of the liffey water <laughs> but um that was you know in the pub but i didn't do it for a long long time but i always wrote songs ever, ever since being a kid and i never wrote for a, an agenda and i still try not to you know to to write a hit or Mm. write this kind of song or write that kind of song. It's just whatever comes out and not really be part of, you know, I'm not interested in commercialism and I'm, I'm certainly not interested in being a star none of that stuff. So it just got to a point where I couldn't ignore it anymore. It kind of happened by accident. I ended up with some free studio time in Yellow Arch Studios in Sheffield that nobody else wanted. And Colin, earlier, rang me up and said, look, why don't we do some of those songs? And I'd already got low. I've been playing with Pope by that point since since 98. And obviously, I grew up with all them. And also, me and Jarvis wrote songs together, you know.
0: Jarvis Cocker, yeah. So they
6: knew, yeah, Cocker. And, and, and uh, they knew, and Steve Mackey as well, bless his soul. They would nag me to, to you've just got to do this, Rich. You know, and I think I was about 32 at the time. So looking back... I guess it was like the last roll of the dice, but I guess looking back as well now I'm 56. It's kind of I saved the last roll of the dice for best. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you mentioned Fagans there. It was in Fagans, I believe, that Killian Murphy tracked you down when he wanted a wanted a version of, of Bob Dylan's song, "The um, uh, Ballad of a Thin Man." He wanted a version of that for for Peaky Blinders. Uh, what happened?
6: Uh, Fagans is, is on Broad Lane in Sheffield. I used to go in there and just play or listen, you know, whatever it was. People, you know, what it's like you've got mm. a session on, people get to sing a song and and then you listen. And the phone went and Tom, the landlord, said, it's some guy called Anthony on the phone for you. And uh, I just remember speaking to Anthony Byrne, I've become very good friends with. He was the director of the Peaky Binders. Yeah. And he's a great guy. And him and Killian, the story goes that they went to the pub to discuss names of who was gonna do this ballad of thin man. And I think they got to the second pint and said, It's gotta be Hawley. So there you and go. I'd never met them before. And they just rang me up in the in the pub and I didn't know who the hell they were. I told the kids about it and they said, If you don't do that, dad, <laughs> we will kill you. So that was that. Yeah, decision made. And then after that, we um me and the lads went in the studio and we 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 all knew the song, obviously, and we just we, we set up and that whole song was done in one take. Well, let's have a listen. You walk into the room With your pencil in your hand You see somebody naked and you say Who is that
0: man? Ballad of Thin Man that Bob Dylan sung in the version there that Richard Hawley has on his new album, new double album. Now then, the very best of Richard Hawley. I wanted to um, finish up by talking a little bit about your musical. Tell us a little bit about the musical and what what you were looking for or what the the story that you wanted to tell.
6: Well, I mean, the the thing is, I get a lot of credit for things that, you know, I don't deserve. And uh, the musical was a collaboration My manager, Graham, he called me and said, this guy's going to turn up and talk to you about something to do with the theatre. And he wasn't very specific about it because he knew if he told me what it was, I would basically tell him to go fly a kite. This guy turned up, Rupert Lord, who actually is a great bloke, I've subsequently found out. And he pitched this idea of doing this um, musical. It wasn't specific, but it was based around the song Standing at the Sky's Edge. And the more I thought about it, because I've got to be honest with you, I absolutely hate musical. I can't bear them. But the more I thought about it and the idea behind it, I came up with a few basic sort of ideas. But the writer of it, Chris Bush, is amazing.
0: It was telling the story of Park Hill Estate in, in Sheffield. What are we? To, what kind of place are we talking about? And what kind of place did you want us to see on stage when you were putting Park Hill Estate up there as as part, as this musical, Standing at the Sky's Edge?
6: Well, the the thing is, is that Park Hill Flat in the UK, they were the solution for the post-war housing crisis, which was massive, you know, to build these blocks of flats was the cheapest and easiest solution to solve the crisis post-war of people being homeless, etc. And also my grandparents, my mother's parents, Albert Edward Wright and uh, Elizabeth Amelia, They were born underneath the Park Hill flats in the original slums, which were called the Duke Street Slums. And there was – Sheffield used to be called in the 20s and early 30s Little Chicago because there was so much gang trouble. And they were born in the middle of all that. The idea of it intrigued me hugely because – and I spoke to the producers and all that right from the very beginning. I said, if you pull the punch of this story, I will walk. You mustn't make it into, you know, a palatable version of post-war British history. It's got to be tell the truth, but also, conversely, I don't want to see anybody on a soapbox finger-wagging because you don't need to do that because the story tells itself. And, you, you, you know, the people who go and watch it, they'll make their own minds up. And when we first started it, I thought maybe, maybe if we're lucky, this might get one week at the Crucible Theatre in Sheffield, and then I'd, I didn't really foresee where it ended up, mm. getting Olivier Awards and all that. It's nuts, you know. I still can't get my head around it now. You know, well,
0: it is an extraordinary story, and it is an ex- it 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 the characters. I think that that we see on the stage are the ones that I think that's what tells it. It's what you said. Tell the story. You don't need to. You don't need to tell us what the story is about. Yeah, yeah, Just exactly. tell it. <laughs> Richard, yeah. it, it has been an absolute joy to speak with you uh, and congratulations on the record and hope to see you over this way again soon, Richard.
6: Yeah, thanks ever so much for ha- having me on the show, lads. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right.
0: Richard Hawley there. And the musical, by the way, is called Standing at the Sky's Edge. The album that we were talking about now then, the very best of Richard Hawley, will be available from this Friday. The Gone is a six-part mystery thriller set in Ireland and New Zealand. It stars Richard Flood as Th- Flood, I beg your pardon, as Theo Richter a hardened guard the detective called to the other side of the world to help with a missing persons case involving the daughter of an Irish special criminal court judge who has vanished with her boyfriend in a rural town called Mount Affinity. Richter, along with a young Kiwi detective, Diana Hui, set out to find the couple, but there are some rather sinister elements at Play and the baffled detectives are left a little distracted. The series starts this Sunday night on RTE One Television, and Chris Wasser has been watching it uh, for us.
5: That's the basic setup. Yeah, um, it sounds like a reasonably good way to start out, Chris. Yeah, it does. Yeah, and the initial vanishing. Yeah, you're you're on board. Uh, you you get to see this couple, Sinead and Ronan for a few minutes in their house, yeah, played the by Rachel Morgan and Sh- Simon Mead. And, and Simon Mead. Yes, that's it. Uh, who live at the bottom of this? You know, in this rented house the, at the at the foot of this. Mount Affinity, um, and they're preparing dinner for guests. You don't really know who they're preparing dinner for. But one of them, uh, uh, Roland, that is, he has bruises on his face and he's got a cut. So you're, you're immediately thinking, what sort of trouble is this guy in? Mm. And then we cut to an empty house. We have their parents walking in, played by uh, Liam Carney and uh, Michelle Fairley. Fairley. Um, and they're walking into a house filled with smoke. You know, the dinner is ruined. The phones have been left behind. The car is no longer in the drive. They didn't just nip out for Milkshawn. They have vanished without a trace. So, this, uh, the mother of Sinead, played by Michelle Farley, uh, she calls this hardened detective, as you said at the top, back home. That's Richard Flood's character. His name is Theo Richter. He's actually on the verge of retiring from the guards, and he won't tell his superiors why, but clearly something has happened in his life that's mm. made him want to reevaluate things. Okay. He's in a bit of a mess. And he gets this call right in the nick of time because he's sort of looking for trouble. He causes a bit of trouble after his staff Christmas party, he's a bit all over the place um and he gets this call saying i need you to come out here the judge is his friend my daughter's gone missing can you hop on the next plane to new zealand he does and uh, whatever he doesn't we've no television series <laughs> to share and when he gets out there which has a touch of the hidden assets feel off it yeah. he's
0: going to um, which is just finishing up on 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 uh, television on rt television um he, he he he's going to go out there and he's going to team up. In fact, with a married detective, isn't he? He Mary, is a married detective. detective.
5: Yes, her name is Diana Hui. She's played by uh, Akushla Tarakoup. Uh Great character here, where you have this, and we've seen it a million times before. And this show is full of cliches, but I did quite like this character mm. setup, where you have the this, this idea of a character returning to the hometown that they thought they'd left behind. You know, and when they come back, you know, they've got some unresolved business with family members. There's always a case that keeps them there. Anyway, yeah. this this town. Mount Affinity, uh, this is where she grew up. She hasn't been there for years, she hasn't come back in years, and she has her reasons for that. She has to uh, work alongside Theo Richter, and at first, isn't too happy about that because this is her first big case, and she doesn't want anyone else kind of interfering. Getting in the way. Yeah, let not least a fellow from Ireland coming over, throwing yeah, his we weight around, around the, place. the show.
0: So that kind of gets a, a sets up a certain dynamic. Let's listen to the first scene between Irish detective Theo Richter, played by Richard Flood, and his New Zealand counterpart Diana Hui, played by Māori actor Akusha Tara Coop, Here they are meeting for the first time.
2: Irish woman Sinead Martin, a management consultant working locally, and her boyfriend, Instagram fitness influencer Ronan Garvey, have been renting a farmhouse in Mount Affinity. Sinead Martin's parents, Joseph Martin and Hannah Martin, a special criminal court judge in Ireland, raised the alarm when they found it deserted. ...but undisturbed. You the Irish guy? About the we're about yeah. To the Detective Theo Richter.
4: Dear Stena, who are you? Long way from home, you go here fast. I
2: didn't feel fast.
4: I read your file. 20
1: years experience. This is my first investigation sole charge, so... ...happy to use what you bring.
2: Yeah. Happy to be used.
0: Doesn't sound like the warmest of meetings. Yeah. Uh, Dan Huya, yeah, actually, she tells us exactly how to say that name. Yes. Uh, doesn't she? In the midst of that as well. I, and of course, it's only right that the initial meeting should be a little bit frosty. He is, after all, he has flown to the other side of the world, literally. Yeah. I presume the, the does. Or maybe I'm wrong, does the dynamic change from there?
5: It does a little bit. It's that classic thing where, you know, we're going to be spending hours with these people and they're spending days together. So the rapport is either going to improve or get worse. And hopefully, you know, and in this case, it kind of gets a little bit better because you know you have a case of uh, Theo is he's not used to working with other people and he's not used to answering to other people so he's going to have to change the way he works and Diana is used to solving mm. cases quickly but this is her first as a detective sergeant so she's going to have to slow down so they're both able to advise each other you know on, on, yeah, on what so, they so should do. So there's kind doing. of a yin and yang yeah. thing going yeah. on there
0: which, which leads to a nice little bit of drama potentially but um, we can't go too far
5: down no. this there's, The Mount Affinity even the name suggests there's, there's more to this place than meets the Right. There is, you know, look, there's a lot of unsolved mysteries in this town. And one of them is actually it actually involves the disappearance of Diana's mom. She was told that her mom took her own life when she was around 10 years of age. She doesn't quite believe that she, in fact, thinks that her mother's disappearance might have something or might have some sort of connection with the so-called mountain murders mm. where you had two tourists two decades beforehand who were killed in the mountains. The the, the, the killer left a disemboweled goat at the bottom of the mountains and thereby and, and therefore the, the killer was known as the goat Man. But these cases were never solved and there's a memorial that stands in the middle of the town and this affected you know tourism in the town people were afraid for their lives but there is a sign that, as, as the mayor tells us when we meet him that the town was just about getting over it when all of a sudden two more tourists disappear so this, this, so it could be a case of kind of history repeating itself it could be the same killer but either way Diana has an awful lot on her place and then you also have this green tech company Hokuru, on the side that Sinead worked for Sinead being the, one of the yeah. people who's disappeared and they're you know very obviously up to no good So there's an awful lot going on the sidelines. Too. And f- briefly, your inner journalist is hurt. Yes. By the portrayal of journalism in this, uh, yeah. I think, Chris, is it? I just think poor Caroline Bracken, who's quite good here in trying to make you know a proper character out of her journalist Alien Ryan, but she's just that, you know, walking talking cliche, that quintessential hardened journal that just thinks they can charm people with terrible questions, that thinks that it's okay to helm people when they're having their lunch, tries to, you know, buy information with cigarettes. It's just we've seen that too many times. I know I said the same for Diana, but yes. it's just—it's a little bit too much. Okay, I feel there may be—I
0: hear you protest a little too much, but that's, <laughs> I'm sure you're being objective in that in that judgment of the journalist and the portrayal. Is it worth saying yes or no? Should we watch?
5: A little ordinary at the start, uh, a little too derivative too. There were times where it was reminding me too much of the dry, too much of uh, not uh, the dry, sharp. the comedy—not the dry, the comedy yeah. series, but the Jane Harper novel that was made into the Eric Bana film. Uh, reminded me of sharp objects, and you know, you're thinking to yourself, "Why watch this? What you, when you can watch those things?" But I would will say it does improve as it goes along the performances right. by Richard Flood and also the actress playing Diana are quite good stick with it
0: Stick with it is the advice from Chris Wasser Uh, The Gone first of this six part series is on Sunday October the 22nd at 9.30pm on RTE One Television It will also be available on the RTE player And so to our latest RTE short story finalist Dubliner Jamie Sampson Jamie was the second finalist or was a finalist I beg your pardon at the 2019 Hennessy Literary Awards in the first fiction category and his RTE short story is called Off Season You can find it uh, to read on rte.ie on the Culture homepage. I'm delighted to have Jamie Sampson with me in studio this evening. Off-season, you're bringing us to Taramalina's off-season. Taramalina? Yeah, in in the middle of March. This sounds like something you might have done, Jamie.
4: It is something I did. I went there earlier this year and um, was immediately struck by a very unique atmosphere uh, that you find uh, in the south of Spain on the off-season. Um, and I immediately thought there's a story in this with its uh, palm trees and golden beaches. But there's a touch of ice in the air and a touch of something not quite right.
0: Yeah. And um, I don't think you give us the outline of the story. I hope the only bit that matches here is the fact that you were in Tarmalina's off season. Tell us the <laughs> other part of the story that yes. I don't think is autobiographical. Yes,
4: the rest is is made up. Um, It's the story of a couple, really an ex-couple, who were once engaged and decide on a whim to meet in Spain and see what happens. And there's a lot of history there and there's a lot of uncertainty. And what happens is they discover that it's not easy to rekindle the past like that. Yeah. And so it, it ends up a little bit awkward and ultimately a little bit disappointing. Okay,
0: and you kind of think,
4: how long have they been apart?
0: Six years. Six years. So this is a kind of a, a big moment. But there, is, there are questions: Are do they regret it? Was it the big mistake? Because they were the loves of each other's lives yes. back in the day. All right, let us listen to a clip. I think this is your first time hearing this clip, is it? Yeah. I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's very good. Uh, let us. It's Rory Nolan who is reading here, and at this point, um, the the two the two former couple have met up the bedroom situation was maybe not quite what they expected. No, it didn't go too well. And our narrator's arm kind of slips around his former girlfriend and this is what happens. Don't do that, her dark form commanded. Sorry, I didn't. It's fine. We'll talk about it tomorrow. Just don't do that. I obeyed by rolling so far onto my side of the bed that half my body dangled over the edge, a position in which I remained like a chastened sloth until the following morning. And there we go. Rory Nolan reading a section there from Jimmy Sampson's story off-season. First time you've heard the clip. And when you
4: were writing, did you have a voice in mind? Rory Nolan was the reader there, Jimmy. It's funny. I couldn't have asked for a better reader. It The voice was you know, uh, that kind of uh, there's a, there's a bit of haughtiness there, I mm. think. They're both, both characters in the story are in a in the same situation, but one of them is really lacking in self-awareness and that comes through, I hope, in the narration and I think it will come through in Rory's reading.
0: Yeah, it's certainly you have to think, what was this fella thinking? That, <laughs> um, you know, we might spend a bit of time together and see if we can rekindle the old spark.
4: Yeah, it's, it. The, there's a sense that the future isn't offering what they had both hoped. And so they find themselves going back to the past in search of hmm. the things they need. Um, and it's a terrible mistake, which is, you know, suggests that there is some desperation there uh, under all the,
0: yeah. you know, uh, the bravado Yeah, the, and bluff the bravado, And it's funny because you, you, you kind of, when we know, as we do quite early on, well, that's the plot bit over and done with, This isn't going well and I don't think it's going to go well, is kind of the feeling you get. And it struck me, uh, Claire Keegan speaking to us last night about this idea of tension versus drama. You kind of get the drama out of the way quite early on. So then were you concentrating on tension from there on?
4: Yes. And I listened to the programme last night. And I mean, Claire Keegan, as well as a brilliant practitioner, is a great theorist of the story. And I thought she got at something really close to the heart of what short fiction does so well and what I was trying to do that sense of it can be just as interesting in those little spaces of and silences between people when you know entire novels are written in silence and, and has, have you been mostly
0: concentrating on the short story form or have you been heading towards novel writing as well
4: I, I love the short story form um, but I am trying to write a novel and novels are a different beast I mean there's a real engineering involved in a novel, and you can't you can't leave a novel too long. Uh, mm. You need to be in that headspace. So novels are trickier to do, but I'm really trying to get this one over the line. Yeah. So
0: uh, what can you tell
4: me about it? So it's 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 in it's in process at the moment.
0: What stage are you at, and what what have you got so far?
4: I'm about uh, halfway through the first draft, so it's fairly early days. Um, it's a, a satire on technology, and the self-help industry and it's just a one sentence summary is it's about a shadowy think black mirror startup that produces an ai device that um optimizes decisions for its user um at the expense of turning them into a sort of machine themselves and so they get success but they lose a lot along the way
0: ai and the writer of course one of the big debates at the moment particularly in the in the film industry do you have a strong opinion in that area
4: yeah, um I work as a day job as a copywriter and I'm looking at AI not so much as a as a toy or a tool but as a competitor. <laughs> it's taking over a lot of uh, ordinary writing tasks. Um I think creative writers, I think short story writers are safe for now, but who knows what the next update will look like.
0: So have you seen part of your copyright job disappear to AI?
4: To some degree. I've I've certainly seen I've I've felt my mm. role as a copywriter losing ground a bit to the to the machines yeah well stick
0: with the creative writing seems to be the task there we'll see you on Friday week of course you will be out in uh, the Pavilion Theatre in Donair we'll be back there Jamie's story off season is one of the finalists in the RTE Short Story competition it will be read this evening you can hear it in full read by actor Rory Nolan on RTE Radio 1 tonight at 11.20pm as part of Late Date and if you want to find out more about that event of ours on Friday the 27th of October at the Pavilion Theatre paviliontheatre.ie for full information I won't be here tomorrow night myself because I will be in the National Concert Hall with the RTE Concert Orchestra Movie Music Masters brilliant music I was in with rehearsals with them today Bernard Herrmann's Psycho and Vertigo you'll hear both of those Danny Elfman's Batman and Spider-Man Rachel Portman some beautiful melodies in uh, piano pieces from her including a suite from Chocolat and Alexander uh, Desplaz Godzilla as well as Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows that's the RTE Concert Orchestra Tomorrow night, movie movie master movie music masters at uh, national concert hall. You'll find out full details on rte.ie forward slash CO. But that is our lot for this Wednesday evening. Paula Shields and Leah Murphy researched. Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. Ruth Kennington was on sound this evening and tonight's programme was produced by Reg Luby So I'll be back with you on Friday night. Here on Arena, but hope to see some of you in the concert hall tomorrow night with the RT Concert Orchestra. John Creedon will be with you after the news.